Welcome back to another episode of We Are Human. I am Sam Thiday. I am the lucky host of this podcast uh, because I get to interview some great and amazing people. And uh, my next guest is Corey Brown, Australian champion jockey. And Monaco Control won the derby by a length extra. Rekindling has won the Emirates Melbourne Cup. Corey Brown, you win your second Melbourne Cup. What does that sound? Oh, there's a fall. Lord Arthur fell. Lord Arthur fell back on the field. I got speed into the ground. I was chest first. I wasn't head first, luckily. If I was head first, I doubt that I'd be here talking to you. And then when we stopped, I could hear the horse stop. But I knew the horse was lying right beside me because of the power and, you know, he's, the horse is heavy breathing right beside you. Stand by, and they're racing in the Melbourne Cup. Fumador jumped to Lally Feely and got a little bit of a brush. Single gaze out well towards the inside. Max Dynamite midfield early. Johannes Vermeer out well with boom time and also Ventura Storm. Max Dynamite behind them. Speed. Corey Brown, mate, you've pretty much done it all. Yeah, no, not quite, Sam, but um, I missed out on a Cox Plate. I've, I've placed in all the, the four majors. I've placed in the Cox Plate, uh, Caulfield Cup, as well as the... Um, Golden Slipper, but yeah, I've been lucky enough to have uh, two of the best trophies I think there are going in Australia, which is the Melbourne Cup. So, yeah, been very, very fortunate in my um, my career so far. Well, you talk about the Melbourne Cup; they call it the race that stops the nation, but it's become a real international race now, hasn't it? Oh, without a doubt, mate. Um, you know, like since Mick Canan come over many moons ago to win it on vintage crop um, and took it back over to Ireland, I think it opened up a lot of um, a lot of people's eyes overseas as far as Europe and. You know, even like the sort of American horses, not that we've had um, a lot of American horses come for it, but even the likes of Japan, uh, Hong Kong, things like that, it's, it's opened up a lot of racing people's eyes. But, yeah, no, it's it's definitely, um, it's like our grand final. Um, I think it, it'd be similar to playing in like a, a state of origin. Um, but, yeah, no, it's definitely the race. I wouldn't say stops the nation, but definitely stops the world at the moment. It definitely excites our nation, but uh, it'll, 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 it definitely <laughs> stops the world. Corey, I want to take you back, back to your childhood. And where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a little town called Wingham. It's uh, on the mid north coast, just uh, west, probably about thirteen kilometres west of Taree. I was always involved in racing. My father was a jockey. My grandfather was a, um, or my uncle and dad were jockeys. Uh, my grandfather, uh, well, he was a sort of like a picnic rider. We call them like a, not professional, but st- sort of just fanged around the bush a lot didn't really want to be involved in racing. Well, I mean, I was always at the races and I think that's where I was destined to end up. But um, I, I wanted to ride motorbikes as a young kid. And, um, but I think it was just an outlet to get out of school. Sam, I, I'm dyslexic and just didn't want to be there. And started at a very young age of riding track work at uh, 14. And yeah, it just, it just started from there. Well, talk us through school uh, as a kid. And I'm just putting this out there. You, I don't want you to take offence, but you would have been a smaller kid at, at the school you went to. But then also having those learning difficulties, was that hard for you as well? It was, you know, like especially, um, I'm going to say, in the early years, like I, I was lucky enough, my school teacher, who I still remain very good friends with, um, his name's John Tyso, Mr T, he sort of took me under his wing. Uh, I was struggling at school and, he actually was our sports teacher as well. So I was quite often found myself when I wasn't trying to learn in the classroom, he had me down the sports shed because I, I wasn't sort of able to take part in whatever the you know curriculum was. 
I was down at the sports shed pumping up the footballs and whatnot. So he was, he was very, um, I, I'd say, sort of sympathetic, you know, like knowing that I was dyslexic and wasn't catching on to the schoolwork that I was meant to be doing. He was looking after me in other areas. So, um, But then when I got to high school, I'll be honest, I wagged a lot of high school. I, wasn't, I didn't uh, sort of attend a lot of it. Um, we grew up on the mid-north coast and our main sort of thing to do in, as kids was a river run right through the middle of town, the Menning River. So... Um, always down the river you know swimming and carrying on but I was fortunate enough uh, my best friend he had three older brothers who were quite big and quite in the well, in the rugby league as well as fighting so I, I was I was well looked after in high school although I was a small kid uh, I was very very well looked after yeah well it's funny you say that because I can still remember back to my primary school days and having a teacher who did the same thing took me under under their wing and I was actually the guy that um handed out the sporting equipment at lunchtime. So when the kids wanted to maybe hire a basketball or you could get a, you know, you could hire a cricket set, I was the one that um, would have to take their details and what class they're in and get them to write it down on the piece of paper and I had to make sure they, they bring it back at the end of lunch. So, you know, giving that uh, little bit of extra responsibility, I think that really helped me too as a kid because, you know, I was the same as you, mate. I really had some um, learning difficulties at school. You know, reading uh, wasn't my strongest point. Um, but you know the, the help of some some amazing and remarkable teachers really helped me out. Yeah. And mate, if if I went to school with you, I, I would have looked after you as well, mate. <laughs> I'll be totally honest. I'm lucky that I've married the wife that I have. Without her doing emails and you know reading all the sort of the paperwork, what goes on behind the scenes, um, yeah, I'd be totally bugger without her. Now you said you wanted to uh, be a motorbike rider as a kid. You're choosing all these uh, extreme sports, aren't you? Yeah, no, I've, I've always loved, um, especially motocross. My idol in life now is Valentino Rossi. I haven't been lucky enough to um, sort of go onto the track and compete on the on the big road bikes, but up until about, I reckon, well, seven or eight years ago, I actually had a property seven acres and I owned my own Bobcat and um, had a motocross track in the backyard. So, yeah, I've always been very interested in racing, but um, the wife was good enough many moons ago to tell me that I had to, to sell the bikes because I'd, I'd done a few injuries. I broke a good few ribs, I broke a heel. I was finding myself, hurting myself more than what I was sitting on the back of it. So yeah, no, the wife said I had to get rid of them because I had a career to look after. Yeah, it's funny you say that because my wife many, many times would tell me to put shoes on while I mowed the lawn because at the end of the day, they were my money makers. So yeah, <laughs> yeah we, exactly. We, it sounds like we both have very, very strong wives. Um, <laughs> mate, uh, at what point in time as a young kid did you go, your family's right involved with racing? When did you kind of crumble to that pressure and go, oh, I'm, I'm going to get into the racing industry? I was 14. I was actually one of the first ever apprentices because it was a local area and my father obviously knew all the big knobs and whatnot. But I got involved in racing. We weren't actually allowed to start until 16. But when I started, I was actually 15. I'm my first race ride at 15. The horse actually broke its leg and come down with me. So my first ever ride in a race at 15, I had a race for at Kempsey on the mid-north coast. I managed to get up and ride the same day finishing third in the race and a little bit frightened, as you could imagine. But where it really sort of started to take place, uh, where I really got my head around racing, I went to Grafton. I actually went with a friend of my father's, another jockey who actually sold race gear. But I wasn't riding at the two-day carnival at Grafton. I was very young. I'd only had a couple of rides. But when I arrived at Grafton, Malcolm Johnson, who um, is my idol in racing, he was there. And when I met him and I... So I couldn't get my eyes off him all day. It was just like a, I wouldn't say a man crush, but I just, 
I was so besotted by this guy in the jockey's room because he was very flamboyant and he was very outspoken and I loved his charisma. From that day onwards, once I met him, I, I, I set my sights very, very high. I, I wanted to get to Sydney as quick as I could. If anything, I got to Sydney way too early, but because of Malcolm, after I met him that day, I went to Gosford as an apprentice for three or four months. And then um, I ended up in Sydney to do my last two and a half years of my apprenticeship. That's sort of where I would say the real passion began. You talk about your first race. You have a fall in your first race. Are you taught as an apprentice or as a as a young jockey coming through? Are you taught how to how to fall properly? Is is that or is that even a thing? No, you're not. You're not taught at all how to fall. But I was probably a little bit lucky enough. I rode in the rodeos for many years as a kid. I'd had many a tumble at the rodeo, so I probably got a little bit used to hitting the turf. I had no hesitation, but again, it was probably because I had that little bit of a rough upbringing and yeah, around the rodeo circuit, and again, plenty of stacks off the motorbike. What I've got from this conversation so far is uh, you have no regard for your body at all. You throw it in anything <laughs> and everything. But uh, there must be some type of thrill with riding a horse that continually brings you back every time. Sam, I think like when I was a kid and I was an apprentice, um, having to get up really, really early mornings and look after them, I didn't have a lot of respect for them. But the older I got, I just, you, you really fall in love with them and you bond with them, you know, and it's it's hard. Some horses are hard. They're very much like humans. Some can be a real challenge to actually bond with But When you get on the good ones and you get to know them and you mentioned um, Apache Cat, you know, like, Beautiful horse. Him and, yeah, the, the bond that I had with him, it was just amazing. You know, I, I knew him back to front. He obviously knew me back to front once I sat on his back. But surges to the front with 50 to go. And the favourite kicks away and wins it well. Apache Cat wins it from either reigning to win or take over. But, yeah, it's it's just that the feel that they give you. It's the adrenaline, yes, of winning. But but I, I just love being on horseback. Um, That's just where I feel free. I love doing it. Do you remember your first win? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was called Another Square. It was my seventh race ride. Um, it was at Kempsey again. I'm not sure where the photo is. We've moved many, many times, but there's definitely a photo yeah. around here somewhere of him. <laughs> as a jockey, you do a lot of work behind the scenes. As a racing fan myself, I rock up to a race day or I go to the pub and watch it on the telly. We see the end result. It'd be pretty mind-blowing, actually, Sam, if you could actually get a video to follow us around because my alarm would go off at 3 o'clock in the morning, get up have half a cup of coffee, head to the track. Um, I'm on first horseback, obviously under floodlit lights at four o'clock. I'd ride probably six to 10 horses, galloping them, getting them fit, getting, you know, exercising them, getting them ready for race day. Yeah. Then I'd probably arrive home at about eight, 8.30. If I could, I'd have a light bit of breakfast, a little bit of fruit, maybe a piece of toast if you can afford to have it. But then that's when the real journey begins. I might spend like an hour, hour and a half in the bath between 35 and 38 degrees, sweating out. Sometimes you might have to have, lose a kilo and a half, but then you're off to the races, sort of 10 o'clock, 10.30. So you're obviously dehydrated, and I might compete in eight races on that day, you know, and they're yeah. all different horses, so you're riding all different weights and all different distance of races, so. Gates are back now, they're off here. Even our day, what we would class as a day off, is generally a Monday or a Friday. We generally have barrier trials. So we might go to the trials at Ramwick. You've got to be there at, say, 7.30 in the morning. Uh, you mightn't leave until midday, 1 o'clock in the afternoon sometimes. They could have, like, 18 to 20 trials and it could be the middle of summer, so you're just on, off, on, off. It's very taxing on your body. Other days that you do get a day off, you, you try and keep the fitness level up because it, it, it's amazing. Two or three days not riding, it's amazing how quick your fitness can drop. 
me personally, I always struggled with uh, with weight throughout my career. Are you uh, a bigger jockey or are you always all good with your weight? I generally hover around about 53 and a half, 54 kilos, but I'm one of the fortunate ones that can actually get down to a lot really light weight. So hence the two Melbourne Cups that I got, one, I think, shocking carried 51 and Rekingling carried 51 and a half. So if I rode Piero in the Cox Plate to run third at 49 and a half, which was a struggle, but yeah, no, I'm definitely one of the lighter weight jockeys, although I'm a little bit above fighting weight at the moment. I'm hovering around about 63, 63 and a half at the moment. Yeah, we're all, um, a, bit, we're all but a bit yeah, no, at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> COVID, mate, I blame COVID. You've had some awesome wins throughout your career. Have you got a memorable moment, your best moment or your best ride you've ever had? Everyone, obviously, I, like, I love the Melbourne Cups and they've been two totally different circumstances. Like the first one that I won on Shocking, the year before I went on Shocking, I ran one of the closest second ever on Bower. So I had the nightmare of watching the replay for 12 months, you know, like yeah. wondering was I ever going to win this race. So then when I come out the very next year on Shocking to win it, it was like a huge relief. And then the second time ran on Rekindling, it was really, really special because I had the three daughters and the wife down there. All the girls were old enough to be at the races and really enjoy the moment, you know, in the, in the day. And they got into the enclosure after winning the race. And, that was really satisfying, like just to sit back and watch them enjoy it as much as what I've got to enjoy it before. So, come in, guys, come in, come in. This is more important than the taxis. Who have we got here, Corey? Is this Kylie? It's my wife and three daughters. So. Kylie, how are you, love? I'm really, really ecstatic. <laughs> it's ex these girls have grown up a bit since Dad last won the cup in 2000. Corey, don't you go far. We need one of my greatest moments on the racetrack. It was Epson Day. I'm not sure of the year, but it was going back. I won the Epson on Clangalang, but I won, there's three group ones on the card and a couple of group two races. And I managed to ride four out of the eight races, the three group ones and a group two. But yeah, you know, I won the flight stakes on Unearthly. I won the spring champion stakes on Nielo. And then when I come out to ride for a mate of mine, Damien Flower in the Epson, who's, uh, he's a big punter and he got quite upset with me because I'd ridden the two group ones before and he'd come out and he was, pulling his hair out saying, well, you know, you can't ride a third group one. And I said, well, I don't understand why, because the horses don't know that, you know, they've already ridden two. So I said, I'm riding in great form. <laughs> so I come out and I, I rode the third group one winner. So that always will hold a special part in my racing career because it was just such a big day. And I was, I was quite young. I was the up and coming jockey, but to ride the three group ones, the only three group ones on the car was yeah, pretty special. Do you find that in the racing industry that there's a lot of jockeys and a lot of trainers that are very superstitious like that? Yeah, you do. You know, like some trainers as well as jockeys and even owners. I remember walking out as a young kid. I used to have green. I love the colour green. I don't now, but I love the colour green. I had green saddles and stuff and I walked out in the enclosure. Well, actually, I handed the saddle out. I weighed and then the trainer come back to the jockey's room and demanded another saddle. He said, I won't put the colour green on the back of my horses and I, I, I thought he was joking I laughed at him and just give the saddle back and he, he just refused to put the color green on his horses he said it was bad luck and I said oh, okay no drama so at the time that I handed the saddle back I went back in the room and thought about it and I thought well TJ Smith has blue and green colors and he's the leading trainer of Sydney and has been for the last 25 years so I couldn't work out what he was on about but a lot of them do have silly superstitions, but I'm not one of those type of people. You've got a fantastic memory for you know, names of trainers and, and horses. What was your favourite horse to, to ever get on the back of? I, I think I'm going to go back to Apache Cat. Like, he was great for me. At a time of my career, I'd moved down to Melbourne. I fell on the horse by default. I actually got on him. By, uh, Michael Rod took sick in the Lightning 
stakes. And um, I got on him. And as you said at the start of the podcast, I, I, my first five rides on Apache Cat were at group one level. And I just loved getting on him. And he was a crowd pleaser. He'd, he'd drag himself around the enclosure. But the moment that his foot hit the race course, he'd just, he'd arc up underneath you. Like he, he just knew it was, it was game time. And he knew the crowd were there for him. He's, he's an exciting horse to ride. And I, I'll never forget him. He's, he'll always hold a special spot in my heart. Ben Robert coming back and here's the cat. Apache Cat flashes home along the fence and he's got up to win. Apache Cat beat McMahon. The racing industry can give you so many highs and you know the victories are, are always the ones that are celebrated the, the most. But you know, outside the falls that you've had throughout your career, what are some of the low moments of uh, the horse racing industry? Yeah, look, I mean, I've, um, I've, I've been unfortunate to be involved in some really bad falls. Um, one of the first falls I was involved in when I first arrived into Sydney, I was only 16 year old. I was involved in a fall at Rose Hill where Ken Russell lost his life. And it was just, for me, I, I, I really, I blame myself. I was cleared of any blame, but it just, it really, it didn't sit well with me. And I, I didn't really want to continue riding. There's a lot of lows. You put a lot of time and effort into riding horses and you're not out there to ride them bad, but then you can you can give them an ordinary ride, not wanting to, but then, you know, the, the owners and the trainer will pull the horse out from underneath you. So there's a lot of um, backstabbing and, you know, like bad mouthing just to sort of like secure rides. And jockeys say that it doesn't happen, but I know it does. And it's sort of like, it's it's a part of the game. You've got to, you've got to learn to deal with it, but you've got to have a thick skin. Going back to just before you, you said, as a 16 year old, you were involved in a, uh, a fall where there, there was a death. Is there support there for you in the racing industry? So on a mental health level? When that happened, I would say no. Yeah. Um, but this day and age, yeah, look, um, it'd be very much like the, the football fraternity, you know, like they're, they're there to help. You know, like we've got a jockeys association and we've got the jockeys trust now. So when you're put into a corner, yeah, at the moment, there's a lot of people and it's getting better and better. There's a lot of people there to try and help you get out of it. So, but again, going back to that, the tough time that I experienced when I was a 16 year old kid, no, there wasn't that sort of support. It was more just the family support. And I always felt when I walked onto the racetrack after I, I hung my head low, like I, I felt that I was to blame, but you know, you can imagine the mental health, you know, cause when you're losing weight, it's a lonely place, you know, like you, you sit there, you got a lot of time on your hands and it's, yeah, it can be quite, quite uh, frustrating and lonely and you can only imagine what rattles around in your mind you know like so yeah again now there's a lot of support and it's it's only getting better i want to take you back to your most recent fall so which is the last time that you were on the, the back of a racehorse in brisbane june 8th 2019 race seven at eagle farm right to run field of 18 standby Racing in the derby, and Mr. Quickie didn't begin all that well. Got a bit rough early there. Talk us through race seven. Uh, uh, I wish I could talk myself out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, it's probably obviously to date my lowest moment in racing. Um, Queensland derby, uh, I rode a horse from New Zealand, uh, Murray Baker, trainer, the Lord Mayor. He's a very, very one-paced sort of staying horse, approaching probably the 300 metre mark, 250 metre mark. Um, you're starting to sort of really tire and compound and horses coming from either side. A couple of them cut me short. 
and he, he was quite a clumsy horse and he, he did clip heels and it's not his fault that he clipped heels. He tripped himself over, so to speak. As they went their way down the side, Lord Arthur very wide, followed by Grand Bouquet. Mr. Quickie's coming through the field as well. Oh, there's a fall. Lord Arthur fell. Lord Arthur fell back in the field, but Mr. Quickie is in the lead. I got speared into the ground. I was chest first. I wasn't head first, luckily. If I was head first, I doubt that I'd be here talking to you. So I landed on my chest. I managed to break my sternum. My first rib, which they say isn't impossible to break, but it's very 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 sort of rare to hear of a first broken rib because yeah, uh, punch of, in my lung it's kind of tucked in behind where the collarbone is isn't it the first rib yeah 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 and, it, mm. yeah and it's quite short and they said it's very very strong but i managed to break that and then they call it a burst fracture so obviously the um, pressure going through my body exploded out of my back and shattered the t7 damaged six and eight and also compressed t4 so the horse unfortunately broke its leg and was trying to get up beside me and kept getting up and stumbling over and it was going to land on top of me. So I, I got up and I walked away. I walked probably 10 metres down the track and then lie back down. Obviously with the back pain, I, I knew I was in trouble. I knew I had a drama, but because my arms and legs were moving, I didn't think it was going to be so, so bad. But um, yeah, the moment they realised the damage that I'd done, you know, there's doctors running from every which way to try and sticky tape me to the bed and whatnot to hold me still yeah i've got uh two plates and eight screws holding it together at the moment but um i'll be honest sam the, the light's getting dimmer and dimmer they they say that it hasn't mended well and it needs to be fused and he said he won't know the extent of the fusion until he gets me on the operating table but um at this stage if he fuses as much as what he thinks he's going to do um it'll be career career ending operation so Going into that race, was there anything different? Um, sometimes I'm a bit kind of spiritual. I'm a little bit out there and yeah. you know, signs and all those things. And if I see a number or, you know, a colour or a certain type of bird, you know, things start coming into my head or maybe I mm. shouldn't be doing that or anything like that at all. Any inkling of no, anything going to happen? No, actually, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie and tell you a story. And I, I've thought about it and I've actually never ever told anyone before. When I moved to Singapore, oh, I'd be going back seven or eight years ago now. I first left our youngest daughter, Holly. She's beautiful and she's really soft and kind-hearted. And as I was leaving, she um, had a hairband. She used to do a lot of cheerleading. It's this fancy coloured hairband I used to always tease her about. And um, she gave it to me as a good luck charm. Yeah. And I had it, in my, had it in my locker the whole time that I was over in Singapore. And I brought it home with me and I never, ever told anyone. And I put it in my toiletries bag, which goes to obviously every race meeting with me. Yeah. And I was rushing from the Emporium Hotel in Queensland. And when I got to the races, I had to jump in the spa and lose more weight. And as I got out of the spa, I was looking for some hair gel and some deodorant to put on. And I'd left or I'd lost the um, toiletry bag. And it was the first thing I thought about. It wasn't the toiletries. It was this good luck charm that I had from Holly yeah. given to me many years ago. And I've thought about it and I've never actually told anyone. And that's about the fall. And you mentioned you see things or you, you think about things. And every now and again, I think back, if I didn't lose that toiletries bag, would I have been lying on the turf at 
race seven in the Queensland Derby. It's just one of those things that have gone around in my mind a couple of times. That, that's getting a little bit superstitious, I know, but it has. And again, you you are the first person that I've ever told about that. We'll say spiritual. We won't say superstitious. <laughs> the moment of the fall. The horse has clipped heels. You're going over the head of the horse. What's going through your mind? It's amazing in such a short space of time what actually does flash through your mind. But um, it's it's one of these weird noises like um, when you hit that ground at the speed that you do and the, the rolling and the skidding along the turf that you do. It's one of those noises that's undescribable. Like I, I, I couldn't even tell you what it sounds similar to. But I, I just remember rolling around and skidding around and and then when we stopped, I could hear the horse stop, but I knew the horse was lying right beside me because the power and the, you know, he's the horse is heavy breathing right beside you. Such a short space of time, but it's amazing what what does flash before you when you're when you're about to hit the turf. You talk to some people that you know, have car crashes and those types of things, and they can remember <laughs> everything up to the point of impact. So, yeah, yeah. Just said just before you've had many operations uh, throughout your whole whole career and you, you're going to have many more to come where is your head at at the moment how are you feeling about things look i've been up and down look because it's been i'd say the last six months like i've been sort of preparing myself for a career ending you know operation because it's never been positive since the moment i got home to sydney probably about six months after i started well, i go to the doctors every two to three months the spine specialist and he does scans and whatnot to see how it's going but from probably about the six to eight month mark it was always negative to say that it's not mending as good as they'd like it and um, the plan was to actually take the plates out at nine months and then give it another three to four months for the screw holes to mend and then i'd be back on horseback um but yeah obviously we got to about the nine month and it hadn't mended so it kept extending my three months we'll leave the plates in we'll leave the plates in so I sort of, in my own mind, I sort of started to think, well, it's not looking good. And even if I was to go back riding, you know, like mentally, would I be right um, if it doesn't work out? You know, the chips don't fall my way. I've been uh, fortunate enough, again, by the Jockeys Association uh, to be given a, a sports psych we can go and see or any other psychologist that you want to go and see. But he's become quite friendly uh ollie i go and see him probably once every month or so unless i need to go anymore the last sort of two to three months um having a bit of trouble with um, work cover queensland they're not wanting to pay for the operations and stuff so it's become like a real mental challenge as well as physical challenge for me i feel sorry for kylie and the girls you know like they've got to see this and they've got to listen to it and it's definitely been a challenge and it's 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 always uphill but i always try and stay as positive as i can because if i don't put on the brave face and the rest of the family like they've got to watch it and stuff so and i, I don't want that in our family I, i'd rather be as positive as i can are you um as open and transparent as you can be with the girls and do they have somewhat of an understanding anyway just through the industry that you've been been in for such a long period of time they kind of know and understand that these things happen I used to hold everything inside and not really show my sort of true feelings. And I probably still don't as much as I should. But um, the girls, you know, when they were younger, they always wanted to become jockeys. And every time I had a sort of a fall or something was wrong, I'd make Kylie bring them to the hospital and sort of show them. You know, I'm not saying 
anything against female riders, but I just didn't think it was a sport for female riders at the time. And I used to always show them that they're very, um, yeah, up to speed with what goes on and, you know, what I'm going through. I don't think you're uh, against female jockeys, mate. I think you're just looking after your daughters there. and Yeah. yeah show, I think at the end of the day, you do have to show them reality of, uh, you know, kind of life and the life that you chose and, and the job that you chose. So um, talking about what you're going through at the moment, you've got an uphill battle, essentially. How, yeah. How are you dealing with that? I've been going and seeing the psych for, you know, talking about it and, you know, like how to move on, you know, different careers and, it's the unknown at the moment whether I'm going to, well, when and when I'm, where I'm going to get this operation because, um, you know, I've actually been in quite a bit of pain the last four to five months because where the plates sit at the bottom, I'm sort of starting to come loose. So there's a bit of, bit of friction there. So they're actually starting to really hurt me. It's going to be a long road again after I get operated on. They're going to have to do a bone graft, sort of fuse it all together, and they're going to have to fuse from, I think, about T2 down to T9. So it's going to be a large segment of my spine frozen and i'll lose movement for um quality of life i just need these plates taken out and just so i can sort of live a normal life and get off painkillers and get back to normality somewhat well you are a long time retired um and you do have to live a, a long and prosperous life and you you want your body to hold together do you want to get back and ride a horse again sammy I, i'd love to get back because i think when when you read through my career that 49 group one wins just doesn't ring well, you know. <laughs> you need the one more than the 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look, I would love to get back. Um, yeah, and, you know, like compete with these young guns because I, I know I'd, I'd, I'd be able to mix it with them. But if it's not to be, it's not to be, mate. I'll still have that little bit of um, burning passion there when I watch, you know. I, I still get up on the edge of my seat when I'm watching the big group one races and that. So I would love to be out there competing, but... Um, I'll just wait and see what happens. Yeah, I definitely know and understand that feeling. Sitting there watching uh, State of Origin this year, I could have um, jumped out in the field and <laughs> I don't know what I would have done, but I still every now and then just get that itch and that urge to get out there and play. Are you nervous about that? If I was to go back, Kylie and I have sat around the dinner table and spoke about it at length a few times. You know, like it would probably take me, because I've lost obviously all my owners, uh, all the good horses that I had. So it would take me a long while to get back. I'm not getting any younger. I'm 44. It's going to be a long, long old hard road if it is to happen. But I've never backed down from a challenge yet, so I wouldn't be frightened of it, let me tell you. Mate, I wish you all the best, and I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and having a chat with us today. Cheers, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. There's lots of lows, but there's lots of highs, you know, like, again, winning the Melbourne Cup and, you know, like getting on good horses and getting to meet good people. I've taken a lot out of the owners and stuff like that as far as, like, friendships. Yeah. I've become very, very friendly with a lot of owners and trainers for that matter. So yeah, look, as many early mornings and kicks in the ass that you get, there's a lot of ups and there's a lot of good side to it as well.